Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with three recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm about to begin my third year in a PhD program at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in the solar system. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm about to be a third year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and their correlations with their host galaxies. And I'm Melena Rice. I'm about to start my fourth year in a PhD program at Yale University, where I study planetary systems and their properties. You're listening to episode 18, Hazy High Z. Today, we're looking deep into the universe and back in time at high redshift galaxies. That's the high Z. And when you probe that deep into the history of the universe, it turns out that pretty much everything is hazy. Right. So, Will, could you start us off by just explaining what exactly the concept of redshift is? Absolutely. So back in the 20s, Edwin Hubble famously was looking at the universe and he, he discovered Andromeda. He discovered a number of important things, including the fact that just about everything looked red, redder than, than he expected. And what he realized was that things are moving away from us and the red is the Doppler shift, which is pushing the light rays toward the longer wavelengths as they travel to Earth because the expansion of space is actually stretching out and lengthening the wavelength of light that we see. So light that gets emitted in the blue becomes red, emitted in the red becomes infrared, and so on. So it turns out there's a relationship in there called Hubble's Law, which relates how far away something is from us from how fast it's moving away from us. Right. So typically, redshift is denoted in astronomy by a lowercase z. So before we go on any further, we should probably just toss around, what does high redshift mean to everybody here? So in the field of planets in general, we don't really talk about anything outside of the galaxy. So anything that actually would have a redshift put onto it uh, is probably not so relevant in my field. It's not something we talk about much. So to me, anything greater than redshift zero is pretty high. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the galaxy itself isn't expanding. So you -hmm. don't see a redshift of anything in our galaxy or even in our local neighborhood. You have to go much further away in order to start to detect the first hints of redshift. Mm -hmm. Does anybody know why it's denoted with a a lowercase z? No. Interesting. Yeah, I was trying to look it up, and it it says that it's convention, but I was just wondering if there was historical precedent why that was the case. Pick a letter. Any letter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes in astronomy, letters get reused over and over again. People define different letters. But there are some things that everyone knows. Like, big G is only ever Newton's gravitational constant. You know, C is only ever the speed of light, and so on. Z is just always ever redshift. You never see it as another variable. Mm -hmm. Except for uppercase Z, which we will talk about a little bit later. Yes, I'm not happy about that one. unfortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the things that I struggled with a little bit in reading my Astrobyte this week is getting a sense of how far away and then, I guess, how long in the past light was emitted from an object with a certain redshift value. Alex, do you happen to know, like, when when Z equals 1, how far away, how long ago that light was emitted? Yeah, so redshift of 1 
uh, it's incredibly non-intuitive because redshift works on a logarithmic scale. But what this translates to is a redshift of one corresponds to a time when the universe was half its current age. So about six billion years old. Again, incredibly non-intuitive because what this means is redshift one to redshift zero corresponds to half of the entire universe's age. Redshift one all the way back to redshift infinity corresponds to the other half, the first half. Right. The scale is backward. Infinity is redshifted to the point where we cannot see it. And zero is just no redshift. That's like right here. Right. And it's a really good question because uh, at Los Alamos, when I would run cosmological simulations, typically they would print out not how old the universe was at this point, but they would print out the redshift. And so you would look at these data dumps and you would see the redshift and typically you'd run do a redshift two one, whatever it is. And so you'd see a redshift of like eight and you'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty close to a redshift of two. I'm almost done with the run. But really, you have almost the entire age of the universe, <laughs> half of the age of the universe still to go. Data dumps. <laughs> Astronomers with their crazy units. It's very reminiscent of magnitudes. That, that's true. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the rules of astronomy is everything is backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's made up and the points don't matter. Yeah. Alex, do you happen to know what the highest redshift thing we've ever detected is? I do, yeah. So there's a galaxy known as GNZ11, and exactly as the name implies, it's at redshift 11.1. To date, that is the furthest galaxy that we've been able to detect. Hmm. Cool. So I think today we're going to be staying a lot closer to the present day, somewhere around what redshift would we say, Milena? I think mine's the most nearby, and that's around redshift 2, so 2 and greater. Uh, early galaxy formation prior to the midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's open it up with you then. Uh, enlighten us with an astrobite about the distant but not so distant universe. So the astrobite that I'll be talking about is called a stellar MSFR Big Z relation. Most definitely exists at little z is about 2.3 uh, by Way Sears. Just looking at the title of that on paper <laughs> is excruciating. <laughs> yeah there, there are like a lot of capitalized letters and i just i'm i'm not gonna spell out the capitals but big z versus little z is important <laughs> and it's about a paper by sanders at all 2018 not to be mistaken with our very own saunders at all yeah uh sad fact um it turns out i am not the only william saunders in astronomy Oh. I'm actually not the only William R. Saunders in astronomy wow. currently. Wow. Is it the same middle name? Same, no, not the same. His is Robert, mine's is Ryan. But <laughs> it's, it's really quite something because most publications don't put more than the middle initial. So thankfully, I have about 30 first author publications. Congratulations. <laughs> you, should, you should just cite him a bunch so that you look really good. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, getting a tenure track position is going to be easy. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Our subfields are, are noticeably different, mm. but still, it's it's a little alarming to see that when I try to look up for some of my publication record. Yeah. There's, I, I think, a Robert Galliano who does planet detection. Huh. Yeah. There are definitely a lot of Rices out there, but my first name's a little more distinctive, so that <laughs> yeah, <there>. helps. <laughs> so going back to an astrobite. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the point. This astrobite is focused on galaxy evolution. So it's asking how different properties of galaxies are correlated with each other and what this tells us about how galaxies form and evolve. So let's let's first try to understand about 
how galaxies evolve now, what were the authors trying to add to that picture? Well, from studying many galaxies, what we know so far, or the grand picture, is that gas will gravitationally collapse in dense regions and stars are formed and they explode. Those explosions will heat up the interstellar medium, which is the region near those stars, and enrich it with metals. And then that gas can cycle out of the galaxy. So it's sort of a cyclic motion. And that's a pretty general picture. It's like there are a lot of details that I just skimmed over, a lot of which we don't really understand. So if we want a more specific picture, then we need to study many galaxies at different stages of their evolution to understand how the properties of those galaxies are correlated. Um, So in 2004, Tremonti et al. showed that in the local universe, there's an observational relationship between stellar mass and gas phase oxygen abundance, which is the big Z that I'm going to be referring to that's discussed throughout this work. And then Ellison et al. in 2008 found that this stellar mass and Z, or gas phase oxygen abundance relationship, is intertwined with the star formation rate in the local universe. So this relationship is what they're trying to explore uh, and try to quantify for the slightly more distant universe. Okay, so let's unpack that just a little bit. What is gas phase oxygen abundance, that big Z? So I believe that's just the oxygen abundance that is in the gas phase. So uh, As opposed to liquid or solid? Yeah, I I think it's measured through a specific line in the spectra, and so I'm not sure if maybe there are other isotopes of oxygen that are not being considered here, but... Okay, so it turns out larger stars have more gas oxygen? I think it's not so much larger stars as galaxies that have more stars in them, or okay, they might have more large stars, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So then I guess that's exactly what they're trying to identify in this work, to add more data onto that theory? Yeah, they're trying to to understand at a little bit farther back in the universe or earlier at redshift Z, roughly 2.3, whether this same relationship still holds. And if there is still a relationship, if it's the same one as the one that exists in the local universe. You're saying you're trying to study potentially a different population of galaxies to see if this relation still exists. Yes. Would those be the Gen Zers? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what would these ones be then? Because don't, Gen don't Zs think are... about it too much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in any case, this sounds like a, a fairly observational topic, right? So the authors are trying to find evidence in support of this theory of galaxy evolution. Yeah, so they had to use a lot of different galaxy observations from the MOSDEF survey, which was a four-year program using the MOS fire instrument on one of the Keck telescopes. And in this work, the authors focused on around 260 galaxies with pretty high signal to noise observed with redshift roughly 2 to 2.6. So the average was 2.3. And they measured the star formation rates of these galaxies using their H-alpha luminosity. So it's basically just looking at a line in the spectrum and figuring out how efficiently stars are forming. And then they also used photometry to determine the masses of those galaxies. And they estimated the gas phase oxygen abundance, this big Z, using six different emission line ratios. So they're basically just taking a ton of spectra and deducing these three quantities from them and trying to figure out if there's a relation between them. So is there a relation between them? 
I mean, the title of the astrobite is a relation, so it sounds like they found it. <laughs> yeah, the, the title says that it most definitely exists, so it must be right, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they did find it, and they did have to account for some biases in their data reduction, so uh, if there's dust in between you and the galaxy that you're seeing, then it can scatter away preferentially different kinds of light, and so that can lead to some biases, but after correcting for it, it looks like they are seeing this relationship. You also mentioned they were looking for whether the relationship is different from what it is in the local universe, where galaxies are more evolved. Did they find that? Yeah, so they, they did. And at a given mass of the galaxy and star formation rate, they found that the metallicity of the higher redshift sample is lower than in the nearer universe sample. And so this kind of makes sense because the metallicity of infalling gas earlier in the universe might have been lower uh, in general, as the universe evolves, you get more supernovae, they explode, they enrich the universe with more metals. And so this is telling us a little bit more about the ratio of total mass of heated gas to the mass ejected by supernovae, stellar winds, and active galactic nuclei at different stages in the universe's evolution. Of course, by metal, astronomers mean anything that's not hydrogen and helium. Right. <laughs> so metal, metal is a broad term. <laughs> right. But I, I guess that makes sense. It takes more supernovae and, and fusion to create those heavier elements, so you wouldn't expect to find them in an old galaxy. Right. Yes. Or Wait a second. You wouldn't expect to find them in a young galaxy. You'd expect them to find them in an evolved galaxy. This is also a great point because the question between young versus old is dependent on your frame of reference, whether you're talking about the early universe or uh, around present day. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's confusing. <laughs> the backward um, scale does not help. Right. <laughs> So, okay, Melina, they found this relation. Now they can pack up uh, all their papers and, and we're done, right? <laughs> well, it depends on what you're trying to answer, I suppose, because it would still be interesting to see, you know, does this relation hold at even higher redshifts? And if it does, then is it also going to be a slightly different version of the same relationship? Uh, but that's kind of hard to do. The farther away something is, the more difficult it is to observe in general. And so measuring all of those different parameters at very high redshift is pretty hard. But it might be possible with the James Webb Space Telescope. That's, you know, the punchline of every talk. We'll do it all when yeah. James Webb is launched. Or potentially also with the next era of giant ground-based telescopes that are like 30 plus-ish meters in size. And with that, we will transition to everybody's favorite segment, the Astro Soundscape of the Space Fortnite for Astronomy Noises <laughs> for, for Science. science. <laughs> cool. I have got a really cool space sound for you guys. Well, I won't give it away. You can, you can guess what it is. Wow. <laughs> can, you, wait, can you do it again? I want to hear it one more time. Whoa. Okay. What do you think it is? Jeez. <laughs> okay. So it's descending. My guess is maybe it's like the ring down of something. Like maybe pulsar spin down. It's a good guess. Will, do you have a guess? I, I just love the use of percussion. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, it's clearly a sonification of, of some sort of science thing. 
I don't know. I don't think I have a good guess on this one. <laughs> so this is a sonification of Supernova 2005 EK, which is a rapidly declining type 1C supernova. So that means no hydrogen or helium in the spectrum. And this in particular was among the fastest type 1 supernova to date. So it decayed by about three magnitudes in the first 15 days after its maximum flux. So this is a sonification that is associated with a paper by Drought et al. 2013. And it's on Professor Soderbergh's website. She's at Harvard. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. She has a couple of these different supernovae on her website, and this particular one is thought to be a low-mass stripped-envelope core collapse explosion. Whoa. Type 1Cs are crazy objects. I'm studying one of them now, and they're just so interesting. There's a lot of science you can uh, derive from, from what they tell you. Yeah, hmm. I was surprised to see that it was core collapse, because I always think type 2 for core collapse, but I guess it's just like what elements you see, or that determines whether it's type 1B or 1C, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. So core collapse is pretty much everything but 1As. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so... for that space sound. That's a very fun and unusual Yeah, that was one. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think sonifications are really cool and maybe an underutilized tool. Like, I don't hear them very often for planetary systems, but I think maybe they're a little more common for supernovae. I don't know if that's true. Alex, you've done these, right? Maybe. I have done sonification <laughs> for supernovae. There's also uh, another PhD student uh, at Harvard who works a lot on sonification of supernovae. Mm. Something about the light curves are conducive to, to sonification, I guess. Yeah. Very cool. So, Will, what asteroid do you have for us today? Sure. I'm going to be talking about the one called Spot the Difference, Disentangling High-Z Galaxies. This is written by Lucas Zaleski. The paper is by P. Arabel Harrow and others, published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. And they are looking at high redshift galaxies, which shouldn't surprise either of you. So can you tell us what this asteroid is all about? Sure. When astronomers look at high redshift galaxies, in this case 3.4 to 7.8, so that's pretty far back in the history of the universe, there are two main features they see in the spectra that they look for. One is called Lyman alpha emission, and that is a, a line, a transition line of hydrogen that shows up in a lot of things in the universe, but the Lyman alpha is the two to one transition in the spectrum. Then they also see the Lyman break galaxy, and what that is, is as you get to Lyman alpha, then the next one is Lyman beta, and gamma and so on, you're transitioning effectively from a very high energy shell electron down to the ground level. And there's only a certain height you can go. At some point that electron is not bound to the atom anymore. It's unbound. And once the atom becomes unbound, excuse me, the electron becomes unbound from the atom, it doesn't emit anymore. And that's because it no longer has a fixed set of lines to emit by. It emits in a continuum. It emits evenly distributed over a series of wavelengths. And so those aren't as detectable because the lines are sharp. So they call those Lyman break galaxies because you, as you get to that continuum limit, the light kind of just drops off all of a sudden. So, Will, you're saying these Lyman alpha emitters, this one group of galaxies, is distinct from the group of Lyman break galaxies? There's no overlap between the two? No, there is a ton of overlap. So a lot of them have both. It has the Lyman alpha, beta, gamma, so on, all the way up through to the continuum limit, and then it has the break. 
Some of them just have the Lyman Alpha and have a very weak um, sort of a continuum mission that you can't detect. And then vice versa. They have a strong continuum uh, break that you detect, but the Lyman Alpha itself is, is wimpy. Why would you have Got a it. strong Lyman break, but a wimpy Lyman Alpha? That's a good question. My suspicion would be that it's a selection effect, so we don't see it for some reason, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. A fun fact that I, I stumbled across while looking up this is that as you get past the, the Lyman continuum break, that's in the far ultraviolet, and that is really absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere. So we would never be able to detect that. But when you're looking back this far in the universe, the expansion causes such a redshift that the lines, the emission lines, get redshifted as well, and they get redshifted into the infrared which then we can detect that passes through the atmosphere. So that's kind of cool that we can only see these galaxies specific lines because they're so far away and the redshift has moved the lines to a point we can see. So, well, this might be a, a fun fact for you, but this is actually the central piece to the astrobite that I'm going to present. So everyone <laughs> keep it in the back of your mind for just a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. So, okay, there has to be a, a reason that we're seeing certain features in each of these spectra. So what, what's the actual physical difference between these types of galaxies? That's exactly what the authors wanted to find out. They don't know. And it's tough because at that distance, you don't really have a lot to go on. The guess, the theory is that it has to do with star formation. Okay, so how did they measure this star formation? Or is that what they did? <laughs> I mean, trying to indirectly is the goal. Uh, but what they did is they used an enormous amount of data in the Great Observatory's Origins Deep Survey. The goods. So did they get the goods, Will? Oh, yes. They got goods <laughs> north field data. <laughs> so what did they do with the goods? What kind of data is it? <laughs> Such a stupid joke. <laughs> They use spectra, of course, and what they did with those spectra is they fit them to what's called a spectral energy distribution. And the different spectral energy distributions they fit model different types of young galaxies. And briefly, an SED, spectral energy distribution, is kind of like a regular spectrum, but instead of plotting frequency on the x-axis versus intensity or flux on the y-axis, an SED plots frequency versus energy. And so they convert the intensity, the flux detected from that galaxy into energy. Um, I don't know exactly why, but I know that it's standard. And it's, it's very commonplace in extragalactic studies. And they had two models in, the, in their SEDs. One was a single population of stars that evolve. And the other are two populations, one young set of stars and one old set of stars that evolve together. And then they fit the models to match the data by changing the mass, the age, the star formation rate, and other things. I would worry about overfitting in a problem like this. In machine learning, the algorithms that have a ton of parameters tend to fit the data more closely, but they're not actually fitting and learning meaningful relationships within the data. So this is why there are evaluation metrics like BIC that bias against model complexity. And if you have an SED model that has tons of different parameters, like you said, I would wonder if, for example, the two population model might fit better than the one population model to the data, but not for the reasons you want it to fit better. 
That's exactly right. And that, that is a problem. With two models, you, you just have uh, more opportunity to fit a bend in the data that might not actually be explained by the second model, but just might be a little bit closer to capturing a line or a trend. So they tell the computer in doing the model fitting uh, that unless the double fit is that much better than the single model fit, they should prefer the single model fit always. So they, yeah, they try to downplay it. Alex, you mentioned BIC. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah, so BIC is the Bayesian Information Criterion, and it's an estimate of how good a model does at explaining your data, but it biases against the number of parameters that you use to explain the data that you have. So the idea is that highly complex models are probably not going to be chosen as the best model because you want to have an Occam's razor type situation, explain it as simply as possible. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what they use in this research. Oh, nice. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what do they end up finding? Which type of model? So what they found is that the Lyman alpha emitters, the pure Lyman alpha emitters, tend to be younger by tens of millions of years than the Lyman break galaxies. And they also tend to be less massive. So Will, how does this fit into the context of galaxy evolution? The story that the authors try to tell with this data is that the Lyman alpha emitters evolve into Lyman break galaxies. And the average ages and the average masses support this reasonable result. And then there are galaxies that exhibit both the Lyman alpha and the Lyman break. And they're kind of in between both in mass and age. So that kind of makes sense. And the idea is that the Lyman alpha emitters are the younger galaxies that are first undergoing a round of star formation. And then the Lyman breaks have kind of ended that first round, maybe even begun a second round of star formation. I feel like this this solution is very clean. Like, is there any sort of catch that they had? Yeah, there's a big catch. But all of these ranges are, are quite generous. That is, they have large error bars. So, yeah, on average, some are younger, but they span so much of a range in age and mass that there's a lot of overlap. It's, it's really not a clean theory. Uh, there's not that much evidence that these two uh, different groups based on the Lyman alpha versus the Lyman break are actually connected to something physical. We could be seeing just a one of many things that happen due to the different ages of a galaxy, and we kind of lumped them together, and the groups are messy. So this is just something that is easy to observe, that is present in a lot of the data. So it's really everyone's crossing their fingers and hoping it, it is a smoking gun for the evolution of a galaxy. I don't know that the authors, you know, lean on that that strongly. It's it's nice supporting work, but I think there's still quite a bit of work to be done to show that this is actually a physical observation. Mm-hmm. Well, if this ends up not to be the case of kind of the standard path for a galaxy evolution, then maybe it's possible that a lot of these galaxies took some more unconventional paths, like the galaxies that I'm going to talk about today. Wow, that's a good transition, Alex. Thank you very much. And I'm going to be talking about dropouts. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard ever since the budget cuts recently, galaxy schools have really been struggling with their retention rates. Yeah, reopening might be a problem for them in the fall, but I think they're good. I think galaxies are good at social distancing. <laughs> Before we get too derailed, I'm talking about dropout galaxies. Let's all recall <laughs> 10 minutes ago, Will taught us a lot about Lyman break getting redshifted into observable bands. It turns out this phenomenon can be used to select galaxies at a certain redshift. So you know where the Lyman break is supposed to happen in the rest frame, and therefore you know where it should fall when it's redshifted. 
So based on a particular redshift, you can look for the Lyman break in a band. And if you see that Lyman break, that is to say, you don't see the galaxy in that band, then those galaxies have dropped out. And so that's why they call them dropout galaxies. So this is a neat little trick that astronomers use to select galaxies within a specific redshift range. So you can look in the I band for galaxies within redshift 6 to 7, Y band for redshift 8, and YJ band for a redshift of around 9. And again, if you don't see the galaxy there, then it tells you that the galaxy is in that redshift range. Wow, I've never heard of a band name with like two letters instead of one. I was wondering if this was actually between Y and J. So if you if you see it missing within Y and J, like somewhere between the bands. Okay, cool. That's really clever. It is, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's incredible all the tricks that astronomers play to be able to select specific objects and learn new things about them. My asteroid is called Investigating Early Populations of Galaxies with the Best Telescopes in the Universe by Lucas Zaleski. Lucas is getting some love today. (laughs) (laughs) And it's based on a paper by Kikuchihara and others in 2019. So in this paper, they use the dropout technique to find 357 galaxies between a redshift of 6 and 9, when the universe was, again, less than a billion years old. And they look for these galaxies in Hubble and Spitzer data. Pour one out for a good old friend Spitzer, our infrared eye to the sky. Alex, the title Best Telescopes in the Universe, does that imply that we know about other telescopes? (laughs) That's a great question, and they're actually referring to another trick that astronomers have figured out to observe high redshift objects. They're talking about galaxy clusters, which they argue are even better telescopes than Hubble and Spitzer. I'm very sorry, Hubble and Spitzer. So, (laughs) (laughs) So galaxy clusters are the largest gravitationally bound objects in the universe, generally around 10 to the 14 or 10 to the 15 solar masses. And they're gravitationally bound by superheated plasma that's holding a lot of these galaxies together. And what this means is that because you have a lot of concentrated mass in one area, distant background galaxies are magnified like they would be with a lens as the light from them travels through a galaxy cluster's gravitational potential. So what this means is that we can learn more about these objects than we ever could have had we not seen a galaxy cluster intervening. Does this constitute strong gravitational lensing? It does, yeah. So for for everyone listening, strong lensing generally refers to the type of gravitational lensing that can produce multiple images, whereas weak lensing generally can't. I don't think we have multiple images of our distant galaxies here, but the magnification of some of them was as large as a factor of 80 times for one source, which is pretty pretty incredible. Okay, so when you think about the optics of how this lensing works, the image can be a pretty distorted version of the actual object, right? Yeah, that's true. And this is this is one of the reasons I have an immense respect for, for the astronomers that undertook this work. So Hubble provided them with magnification maps over the regions that they studied, and they used these magnification maps, basically what would get distorted where, to correct for the distortions in the images of the distant galaxies themselves. And then they stacked the science images of their dropouts to arrive at final composite images of distant background galaxies with high signal-to-noise. And what can they find out about these galaxies with this technique? Well, to find out anything about distant galaxies, they have to do exactly what they did in your case, Will, which is SED fitting. Oh. So they use a code called Beagle. (laughs) 
Uh, Darwin, I should say, studied evolution on the HMS Beagle, but here we're studying galaxy evolution using the C++ Beagle. Mm, I had a Beagle growing up. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact. (laughs) Alex put together a really nice joke comparison. It was touching, Melina. (laughs) Hey, I think that my Beagle was touching, too. He was he was a great dog. <laughs> we should all set sail on the C++ Beagle. I actually have no idea if it was written in C++, but that joke doesn't work if it was any other programming language, so I'm just, I'm just going to sit here hoping. In any, in any case, to do the SED fitting, they fit six free parameters. That's the galaxy's redshift, their age, their ionization rate, their stellar mass, metallicity, and dust attenuation within the galaxy. And I should mention that the stellar mass parameter is critical because with that constraint, we can start to construct what's called the galaxy stellar mass function. And that's the number density of galaxies in the universe as a function of their stellar mass. So why this is important is because galaxy evolution models make certain predictions for the low mass end of the galaxy stellar mass function. And up until now, that's been really hard to constrain observationally because of our inability to resolve low mass objects at high redshift. When I say low mass, I'm referring to around 10 to the six solar masses. A million times the mass of the sun. Exactly. And we can't see it. Low mass for the sake of high redshift galaxies. Right. So it's a testament to these galaxy clusters that they're able to give us this information. How high is the redshift that you're referring to where we can't see 10 to the six solar mass objects? So they argue that within uh, the frame that they're looking at, redshift between six and nine, okay. it's nearly impossible right. to impossible to resolve that mass. Okay. Wow. Wild. Okay. So did they reject any of the models? What did they end up finding? Yeah. So the galaxy stellar mass function generally matches previous models of galaxy evolution, but I should mention there's an overabundance of high mass galaxies at the highest redshifts in their sample, around redshift of eight or nine. This is unexpected. Plus, the duration of star formation in these high redshift galaxies estimated from the SED fits are more consistent with around 100 million year star formation periods than a burst of star formation around 10 million years. So it seems like star formation lasts longer in these high redshift galaxies than some models predict. Does that help sort of clean up any of the understanding of galaxy evolution or is it just sort of more data to throw into the pot i think it's more data to throw into the pot it's one of those things some some models predict 10 some models predict 100 this eliminates some models but at the same time it's not a smoking gun for any one particular theory because uh high z galaxies are pretty hazy exactly yeah (laughs) full circle (laughs) so let's do our one sentence summaries now i guess i'll go first this time Connecting observational evidence to physical properties in high redshift galaxies might clarify early galaxy evolution, but it's really hard to tell how strong that connection is with SED fitting alone. Alex? Slow and steady are the star formation rates of galaxies in the early universe, and there are more of these massive high-Z dropouts hanging around redshift 9 than we expected. Melena? 
Observational evidence has shown that there's a relationship between stellar mass star formation rate and metallicity at redshifts around 2.3, and that this relationship is different from the corresponding relation in the local universe, giving us new clues to understand how galaxies form and evolve. One of the things I noticed in all three of these astrobytes is that these researchers used archival data sets. So it makes me wonder, is that a necessity to learn about galaxy evolution at high, high redshift, or is it just um, where the data is best? You know, it's the best practice. It's not necessarily the only way. Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that to understand galaxy evolution, at least in the context of these studies, they're really trying to figure out what trends exist for many galaxies. And so that would probably require at least some form of survey. Although it would be interesting to consider what individual objects would be able to tell us and like if there are specific anomalies that might be interesting. But I, I think what they were looking for was mostly overarching trends. Yeah, I think the fact that you get so little information about these high redshift objects makes it hard to study in detail one, which is why people have tried to do these kind of population statistics studies and, and it seems like you need archival data sets to be able to do that, to be able to gather a large enough sample to actually say something about the whole population. It makes me wonder, though, maybe it's a little sensationalist, I don't know, but do, do we learn a ton from the highest redshift galaxy, Is that, or is that just kind of, you know, just a fun fact? I think a population of one can be useful for eliminating models, but it's hard to use it to validate models. If we say galaxy evolution has to take place like this, then it's hard to say, I have one galaxy and that's indicative of the whole population at high redshift, so this is how galaxy evolution works. But if you say, I have a galaxy evolution model that forbids this galaxy from existing, and then you see that one galaxy at redshift of 11, then you can say, I know that's not the way that galaxies evolve. That's a great point. Right. I would think that if there's only one galaxy we can see at a certain redshift, then that means it must be an outlier in some way, like it's just especially bright for whatever reason. So it wouldn't necessarily tell you what the standard galaxy is like at Redshift 11. It would just tell you, like, this is the most easy to observe possible galaxy that exists at this Redshift. Also a really good point. That, that's a great thought. It's valuable to know that, but it doesn't tell you, like, what is the typical model. Doesn't that apply everywhere, though, right? At, at every redshift, there's a limit to the faintest galaxy that we're going to be able to see. And maybe it's definitely, we know it's complete at redshift of one, but at some redshift, it starts to become incomplete. We're definitely missing galaxies. How do we know that? How can we calibrate for that? Yeah, that's a good point. I would imagine that would make most sense is to just look at the samples that we actually have some completeness for and try to extrapolate, but... Without mm. the observations, it's kind of difficult to actually say for sure whether those extrapolations are correct. But, I mean, I could see that as being a good way to move forward in the theory and then check for those observations once your instruments get better. I will say the nice thing about using gravitational lensing from a galaxy cluster is that you're not necessarily just selecting the brightest objects at that high redshift. Right. You're choosing the galaxies that have had a chance alignment with the galaxy cluster, but that might actually right. be a representative sample of the high redshift objects. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So that may kind of get you a workaround. Maybe, yeah. Just holding up a magnifying glass to potentially a representative sample. But, I mean, again, there could be biases. 
To me, it seems like a chicken and an egg problem. Without knowing how galaxies evolve, we can't predict if our surveys are complete. And without a prediction on our completeness, we don't know how galaxies evolve. How do you resolve that problem? I guess more data, right? What else? Just lots of iteration between models and data, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious, Alex, do you know if the Redshift 11 galaxy was detected through lensing or something else? Because I wonder if something that far would need to both have a perfect configuration and be especially bright or something, because there must be a reason that we haven't seen multiple. It's a good question. Yeah, I'm not sure. It says, so this was in Goods North, as you mentioned, Will. Good Goods. The distance was measured spectroscopically. I'm not sure if there was any lensing involved. Cool. I mean, in any case, I think that that in itself already tells us there are some individual galaxies that can tell us a lot. Just knowing the properties of this one galaxy, I think, would already give us a much better picture of what's happening, where the field is at, etc. Surveys are useful too, but some individual objects can be really useful as well. And with that, we will conclude episode 18 of Astro Soundbites. Hazy, high Z. If you want to read the three astrobites we talked about today or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. You know where to find all of our fabulous episodes, but did you know that we have a website, astrosoundbites.com, where you can actually stream all the episodes directly from a built-in SoundCloud player. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>